0: Uh, take your Bibles, if you would, or your apps, or cell phones, or uh, however you have access to the text this morning. We're just going to kind of pick up where uh, Pastor Chris uh, left off in chapter 3, going to go through verse verse 1 all the way through verse 11. A lot of information in this particular passage where the Apostle Paul is talking to uh, probably one of... Uh, his favorite churches. Uh, Churches are like families, and some are more dysfunctional than others. And uh, Philippians probably uh, was one of the churches that, uh, as best we can tell, most reflected the goodness of God in their community. And so I think Paul had a lot of good things to say to the Philippians, whereas in other cases, like Galatians and, and Corinthians, he had Uh, some good things to say, but he also had some very harsh things to say. But uh, in this sense, he's like protecting them. Uh, And he's using himself as an illustration. And he is essentially encouraging them to understand what the essence of Christianity is. And there was a lot of propensity in the first century to kind of miss that, just as there is today uh, in the you know, the current cultural context which we live in today, uh, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people uh, who would claim to be Christian, uh, but what they mean by that is, you know, there's kind of a philosophical assent to the existence of God, or maybe they like the morality of Christianity, or maybe grandma was a Methodist, or something like that. There's a lot of different meanings when you ask people about their religious affiliation uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was life transformative. Uh, but Paul is warning them about one of the issues in this text uh, that can really keep them from experiencing the fullness of what God has intended for his children, and he uses himself as an illustration. But let's, let's read the text, and then we're just going to kind of go back and just uh, spend a little time unwinding it. The first thing that Paul says is, is "'Finally, my brothers.'" Now, I just want to give you a little bit of heads up before we go any further, when Paul says, finally, it's like, saying, it's like a pastor saying, in conclusion, it's meaningless. Uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul has just finished up with housekeeping. And essentially what he's doing is he's not saying uh, this letter that was written to the church that's going to get any shorter. What he's doing is he's kind of bringing their attention to the fact that the essence of what he wants to say will be in the verses that follow. So uh, everything that Chris said before really is not all that important. This is what you really need to capture and carry home uh, from today is what Paul says here. But he says, finally, my brethren, uh, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it is a protection for you. So that's his ultimate objection. He wants them to understand something that is of critical importance. Watch out for dogs. Uh, very interesting, uh, especially in the light that he's talking out about people who were potentially uh, part of this congregation. If, if it's not part of the congregation, it at least had some external influence on the, con- on the congregation. You know, I've been a pastor for a long time. I don't think I've ever looked at anybody in the church and said, you dog. Uh, you know, at least not with any malice in my heart. But Paul... Uh, he's very bold in this in that he sees that there is a destructive potential within the context of the church to miss what is the essence of our faith and our relationship with God. So he, he's warning them, watch out for dogs, watch out for evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision the ones who serve by the Spirit of God boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul's talking about the Judaizers. Uh, now, the Judaizers, for a, a lot of us, they, you, you know the church was comprised primarily of Jewish believers in the beginning. Uh, but as the church began to expand, uh, it began to reach a lot of Greeks and Romans and barbarians, people who had either other religious backgrounds or no religious background, uh, whatsoever, And they had grown up without all the traditions and the law and the concept of Judaism. And so these folks were coming into the church where they were part of the church. And they were the, essentially their message was Jesus plus, Jesus plus something. So you, this is that their, their passion was something else besides what Paul was saying should be the passion in the life center of a Christian. It wasn't divorced from Christianity, it wasn't divorced from religion, but it was, it was a minor. It was maybe a topic of discussion, but it wasn't anything to major on. And Paul was essentially saying in a way that you and I could understand it is there's always people in the church who will major on minors. And those individuals will keep you from something that is your inheritance and your heritage as a follower of Christ if, if you're not careful. And so he goes on uh, in talking about the Judaizers in verse four by identifying himself as one. Although I once had confidence in the flesh too. What Paul is saying is I used to be a person that was gripped by an ism in my life. And I was convinced that I, my role in life was to convert you to my particular subset of beliefs in regards to Judaism. And I was very passionate about that. Uh, I think Paul would say, if you had known me back then, you probably wouldn't have liked me. But I was a self-fulfilling, sanctimonious, self-satisfied, religious, hate-filled bigot pretty assured of my own self-righteousness and rightness. And my object was to bring everybody into compliance with my particular ism in my life. And the reality is Paul is just identifying his ism. In every cultural context, there are millions of isms. I mean, if we go back to the time of Jesus, I mean, just, just look at some of the groups that were both religious and political During his generation, there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees would be our liberals. They were the people who believed in some sense of morality, but they kind of denied the supernatural. And the Sadducees were around Jesus, and they're around us today. There are people who kind of say, well, you know, Jesus was a good guy. He has some good things to say. We like the morality of Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus. They're, they're essentially all the same. But the, but the core of the claims uh, of Jesus, we, we would reject them. So the Sadducees were there. Uh, you had the Pharisees, which Paul is going to identify himself as a Pharisee. They were the literalists. They believed the law. They lived the law. They preached the law. The life was the law. Uh, and so the Pharisees were all around Jesus. And in fact, uh, most of the conflict that Paul had in his ministry were with the Pharisees. But there were also the zealots. And the zealots were the people who were sick and tired of the injustices of the current uh, political reign. And so their life was consumed with voting out of office, Nero. Of course, you don't vote Nero out of office, but they just went from year to year, uh, trying to find political ways to over. Their thought was, if we get rid of Rome, then everything is going to go back and be the way that it used to be. And so that's how that, that. It wasn't that Rome was good. It was just that they weren't going to get rid of Rome. Rome, God would get rid of Rome and do it in his timing and his way, but the zealots weren't going to do it. But when they came into the church, they wanted everybody to become politically involved on their side. Then there were the Essenes, and the Essenes were just kind of like, you know what, this world is such a bad place, we're just going to escape. We're going to move out of Asheville. We're going to move up into Yancey County. We're going to get this little farm up there. Going to dig a little hole in the ground. We're going to get some beanie weenies and some AK-47s and don't come mess with us. You know, the Essenes were going to escape uh, all the turmoil. You think today is politically and religious complex. It's no different than what uh, your brothers and sisters faced around the world uh, back in the first century. And so Paul is saying, look, there are personal isms, there are uh, isms that come from the culture, and there are religious isms. And you need to understand that these will stir you up and keep you from what God wants you to experience. So watch out for the dogs. He goes on and he says, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a genuine Rolex. I'm not one of these latter-day converts who got to get circumcised when they were 40 years of age. You know, my thought about that is, heck no, ain't going to happen. But nevertheless, moving on, the nation of Israel, I've got the right heritage. I mean, I was born. I am, I am an American, whatever that means. I am, I am born of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And what that meant uh, to the Jews in the audience is the northern tribe, the northern kingdom, all became apostate. They all left God, and Judah stayed with the worship of God, and one other tribe stayed with Judah. Guess who, which tribe that was? There's Benjamin. And so, Paul said, you know, all the way around, even from my birth, I got all the things right in regards to legalism. So, I'm Jewish. I was born Jewish. I've got a heritage that's Jewish. Uh, I even stayed with the truth about being a tribe of Benjamin. As to the law, in regards to this, what Paul is saying, I've even made a choice. I was a Pharisee as a zeal, persecuting the church, as to righteousness that is in the law of blameness. In other words, I, I mean, the law was everything to me. Now, what, what essentially Paul is saying is that there, there are these things that can distract you from the essence of what you should be experiencing as a true follower of Christ. And he identifies that. Just go back up with me for a second into chapter one, I mean, chapter three, verse one. Finally, brothers, are in, are. Kind of to sum it all up, rejoice. That's it. What what Paul is saying is that the true nature of Christianity is joy. Now, I want you to understand the context of the Apostle Paul uh, in this particular passage as he's writing it. Paul has been persecuted. Paul has been imprisoned. Paul has been shipwrecked. Paul has been enslaved. Paul has been beaten. Paul has left everything. And he has lost everything that ever gave him in life significance and meaning. Have you ever been there? Everything is gone. No home. No family. No family. The people, the group that he identified with, have turned their backs on Paul, have rejected Paul. Ultimately, they will be the ones that call him a traitor and turn him over to Rome to being executed. Everything, everything in regard to Paul's identity, everything in regard to Paul's happiness, everything in regards to Paul's welfare, now is gone. It's lost. It's over. And yet Paul is saying the natural estate for the believer is joy. Rejoice. Now, I want to to give you a little illustration that may be helpful uh, to understand where where Paul is at. I'm a a big football fan like my son, or maybe my son like me. Uh, And uh, so I love to go uh, and grew up going, uh, sitting with 100,000 people who just acted like absolute fools you know, and they'd get excited uh, over uh, touchdowns and fumbles and we'd yell and scream. You know, as a pastor... Uh, you know, later on, I began to think, I wonder what would happen if the church ever got excited about God the way we're excited about these football teams. But that's, that's another story. And so, you know, we're going, and it's one of these kind of uh, SEC championships, and it and it's, it's back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, it's touchdown and victory followed by fumble and defeat. And so, you know, everybody in our side of the stands pulling for our team, there's all these emotional highs and emotional lows. You know, it's like, We're going to win. Yeah, no, we're going to lose bad. And we're going through this. And somewhere during the game, I noticed that there was this young couple sitting in front of me. And they never looked at the game. They're sitting there, and they're holding hands. And they're looking. They're just looking at each other. And, And every once in a while, you know, the people will stand up and and they're just sitting there just holding hands looking and he'll whisper you know some i'm sure some sweet nothing into her ear and you can just you can just see it in her face you know it's just like oh and you know, and a little bit later she'll whisper something, you know, into his ear. And it's like, Ooh. you know, and, and the whole time this war, this gridiron war is being waged out on the field with highs and lows and sufferings and victories and defeat, and they're just oblivious to it. And you know, by the end of the game, I'm watching them, and I think, you know, I think I'm gonna throw up. <laughs> and uh, you know, middle-aged guy, surpy, sick teenagers, falling in love, you know, messing up my ball game. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I so at some point in time, I complained to my wife, you know, what's wrong with these kids today? I mean, well, you know, well, they, you, know you know what you say, well, they just go get a room. I mean, <laughs> just get, get out of here. And uh, she makes this astute observation. You used to be like that.. Oh. <laughs> really? You really? You know, I can remember growing up, I had tyrannical parents. They expected me to do chores growing up. You, you know, they were a World War Two generation. They didn't, they didn't, they, they didn't live their life around me at all. They had this novice. I was the child, and you know, and that if they were going to have dwarfs that they fed, those dwarfs were going to have to work, and so I, I had to cut grass. I had this big hill I had to mow every day from the time I was oh, two years old now, probably a little older. You know, I go to college. My dad come home. My dad has a ride lawnmower. I said, Dad, I cut the grass with a little push lawnmower. What's the ride lawnmower? And he goes, Well, I didn't need. One before, and so he, you know, and I had to wash the dishes. And I can remember: can you can you imagine uh, growing up in my state, playing football for a state championship team, and having to go home and wash the dishes? And I can remember being 15 years of age, telling my mother, "What are you thinking?" I mean, I'm a 15-year-old testosterone-filled male, and, you, and I have to get up from the table, and I have to wash the dishes. Are you crazy? And I can remember when I graduated from high school and I went to college, there were two things I intended never to do again to do. I was never going to cut another yard, and I was never going to wash another dirty dish. Now, my wife, I don't know if she's here this morning, but she will, t- she will testify to you. I lived with three other guys and we never washed a dish in two years. (laughs) But back when I was falling in love with Heather, Uh, Her mother, they had sponsored refugees from China coming in during the communist takeover. And uh, so one of the refugees owned a restaurant, and he was a gourmet cook. And so in thanks, he kind of taught Heather's mother to cook. And so we would come home from college, and she would cook these nine-course gourmet Chinese meals that took two, and I'm not kidding, uh, two to three hours to eat. I mean, they were just absolutely extraordinary. But after she got through, that kitchen looked like a nuclear war zone. I mean, it was a disaster because she worked, but it was Heather's job to wash the dishes. So she would go make her way uh, back into the kitchen And, uh, you know, begin to order things and wash those dishes. And, uh, you know, so I just stayed in and had adult conversation with the old people. No, that's not what happened. I went back, I went back and I washed the dishes with Heather. You know, at that time in my life, falling in love with her, there was nothing I could think would be a better situation than for an hour and a half to have my hands in warm, soapy water with her hands touching her. And I can still remember being next to her at that kitchen sink for an hour and a half and turning around because one of the things, one of the rules about the McCracken household is when I was in the presence of her parents, I could not touch her. (laughs) If I put my hand around Heather, my girl I was dating, her father would look across the table and he'd take his glasses and he'd put them on his nose and he'd stare at me. And that stare meant, get your hands off my daughter. And so, you know, I, I, I just would do this. And, uh, but for an hour and a half, I could smell her herbal essence shampoo. And it was it was it was the best part of the weekend. It was well. What changed? I mean, I was doing something I I literally hated to do. But the difference was is that I now loved what I was doing because I was enjoying and rejoicing in the woman that I loved. You see, when when we come to Christ, I can remember I grew up in a loveless joyless Christian home. I understood the law. As a child, I was taught the law. I was punished according to the law. But I never saw the love of God expressed in the context of human relationship of a man and his wife, you know, very rarely towards the end of my father's life. And so, what I what I remember was the difference of finding joy in the mundaneness, in the difficulty, and it explained to some degree, and explains to some degree how Paul could live the life of suffering and agony, and difficulty, and defeat, and rejection that he did, but in that. Life, he had a song in his heart that nothing in the world could rob because he knew the Son of God. I'll tell you something about losing your joy of your salvation. There's three aspects very quickly I want to mention about Christian joy. Number one is it's based on knowledge, but that knowledge is not just datum. I know a lot about Heather. If for uh, Heather and I just celebrated our 42nd anniversary. And what a miserable life it would be is if she lived in another country and somebody else sent me letters saying, you know, she's five foot two and she has brown hair and she has brown eyes and she likes this and she likes that. But for 42 years, I would have lived in a relationship where I had comprehensive intellectual knowledge about a woman. I'd never kissed. I'd never smelt her hair. I'd never held her hand. I'd never looked into her eyes. And God is not calling us into that type of relationship. That is the difference. That is the distinctive that makes the difference in Christianity. It is not about the law. It is about a God who loves us, who writes the laws transformatively on our hearts. It's not that we reject morality as Christians. We don't. It's the is that because of now we are in love with God and God is in love with us. It flows out of us rather than being some type of false external application that religion is essentially the essence of religion around the world and even in some churches today. So, Paul says, look, it's got to be knowledge. We got to, and this is what I'd say. I study and get up in the morning and I study God's word and I do do it to know about God, but we study God's word to know him. It's about a relationship. It's not just information. And I know that my day is going to be such as I live my life that that game is going to be played out and I'm going to have a few victories. But as I've grown older, I've got more failures and I've got more defeats than I do victories. And what sustains me is the joy of the relationship of a God who loves me and walks with me. See, that's that's the essence Paul is saying. So, so Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, in my relationship with him. So I, I've tried the other. I've tried the legalism. So in, obedience is another key to maintaining that when Heather and I, are not right with one another I lose the joy of our relationship and my relationship with God when he reveals a path to me and I choose to go another direction then it's not only do I suffer the consequences of disobedience but I suffer the consequences of a ruptured relationship and there are many people in the church today who do not know God well enough to know that when he gives you revelation and he shows us how we ought to live our lives it is for your benefit it, and it is out of his love. He's not seeking to destroy you. He's seeking to give you life. So a lack of knowledge, a lack of obedience, and then many times we just don't understand our identity that we have become children of God. Now with Chris, your pastor, people say, uh, we, we just know you're so proud of your son. What you don't know is His mother's, and my prayer was, God, just keep him out of prison. I mean, he was, he's told you some stories. He wasn't a good kid. I mean, he was a good kid, but he had his side and he did his things. And sometimes mama and daddy didn't even know about his things. We suspected some of the things, but... He kind of lived his life in rebellion. But but this is is the reality of what Paul is saying here is that we as parents, we always loved our son no matter what happened, no matter what choices he would have made. If he was in prison, we'd not love him any the less. And so it is with our father. God's role and God's reign in the life of the believer is not for the purpose of condemnation. It is for the purpose of freeing you from sin that will destroy you. It's because the very nature of God in the life of the child is he walks with us in a love relationship. Well, then Paul gets to the second verse where he just basically says, watch out for the dogs. And we've already kind of mentioned some of the cultural dogs and some of the religious dogs. There's another type of dog that we see uh, in the New Testament. They were called the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were kind of the opposite of the Judaizers. Uh, If if legalism is one extreme, then license is the other. And the Nicolaitans basically said, you know, since we're believers now, it really doesn't matter. Since we're saved by grace, we've got our Christian liberty. And so if it feels good for me to punch Mike in the nose, I'll just punch Mike in the nose. What do you think, Mike? Let's do it. (laughs) I'm not about to. The Nicolaitans just kind of took the other extreme. Now, let me, let me tell you, as a pastor, what I've learned is there's there are kind of three roots of isms that you and I are going to fight with if we're a follower of Christ all of our lives, and we've got to take authority over those isms in our hearts and our lives. The number one is, is the ism of our personality proclivities. And what I mean by that is all of us are created by God in different ways. For, I'll give you an example. My wife... Is, is when she does her personality profile, one of the tests you can do, she comes out as a beaver labrador retriever. That's the, They use animals. Now the labrador retriever means my wife loves people. She just loves people. And uh, we walk every night together, and yes, we hold hands sometimes, and when we do, we pass dogs. You know, some dogs pass you, and they look at you, and it's kind of like, I'd eat you alive if I had a chance. And other dogs, like Labrador Retrievers, they see you coming, and they smile. Uh, The tail starts wagging, they get that look on like, hey, new friend, hey. Well, Heather loves people, but she's also a beaver. That's her primary driver. Now, what beavers do is, beavers don't follow the rules, they write the rules. My wife likes the structure of known rules. She likes things to work out and for people to do that which they ought to do and they're supposed to do. She married an otter. That means if there's a rule, it's my calling in life to violate it. So the Nicolaitans are kind of an expression of what one of the isms that you and I can fight. We just, we resist anyone telling us how to live our lives. And then the other group in the church wants to tell everybody else how to live theirs. And Paul says they're everywhere in the life of the church. And the problem with them is that they're keeping you from the essence of why Jesus died on the cross. And it's not only the forgiveness of our sins, but it is that we might know and enjoy our God. So, listen, got, uh, met a guy today, or not today, but in Nashville this week and he's going to the same town that Rodney and Chris are going to be in in a few weeks in the Middle East. And he said that uh, uh, his, his company had a compound, and he, get, he ran. He was a military guy. He ran every afternoon, so he put on his shorts, which later on he found out was illegal in this culture. So, Rodney, don't run in your shorts, please. Uh, uh, but he went out to run, and the guy said, Stay in the compound. Don't run outside because of the dogs. And he thought, dogs, dogs. Well, you know, in America, we don't really have any concept of wild, vicious dogs. Uh, my, my daughter uh, just bought, uh, just got a little puppy, and it's a cockapoo. Now, some of you aren't old enough to even resonate with this. But if you, if you ever watch the old, uh, not Star Wars, but Star Trek, uh, there, was, there was something, I think tribits, Tribbles, Tribbles, and one time they, they 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 beamed up this little furry creature that everybody on the starship Enterprise fell in love with but what they didn't know is that they would multiply very rapidly and they filled up and they created a crisis. The whole starship was filled with these little furry balls. Well this little puppy she got just it's just this you, know, you got to you can't got to be careful cuz you'll step on a little furry ball, but it's it's a dog. And it'll run by, and it runs up to your feet and licks your feet. And it's just so cute. When Paul calls people dogs, he's not referring to a cockapoo. Jesus used the same terminology. But this guy said he got out and he was running. And he said about five minutes into his run, he noticed there was a dog running behind him. He said after 10 minutes, he noticed that there was about 10 dogs behind him. He said about 15 minutes into the run, the dogs begin to work in a coordinated fashion in the way that a wolf does. One would run up and try to grab his ankle and his legs and bring him down. At this point, you know, he's decided from now on, I'm going to run in the compound. <laughs> because these dogs are seeking to kill me. I'm out here to do this, and these dogs are looking for a meal. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, if you've got one of these proclivities in your personalities, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just the influence we've had. We've had a, a mentor who was into one of these isms. Or sometimes we grew up and we had a bad experience, and so we we grew up in a legalistic church and we go the other way. We don't like anyone telling us what to do. Or we grew up in a liberal church and we go the other way. We want to find somebody who really believes. But what Paul is saying is you've got to watch out for these isms in the church. You've got to watch out for the isms in the culture. You've got to watch out for the isms in politics. You've got to watch out for the isms of your own heart because if you get caught up by those, they will kill you. They will keep you from the essence of all that Christ has for you. So Paul goes on and he says, finishing up pretty quickly, but everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything, I'm willing to lose everything in the view of the surpassing value of not knowing about Jesus, but knowing Jesus my lord you know, there are four different character, four different types of people in the world just mentioned there's there's amoral people and they were the barbarians they were the people that basically said there is no moral central of the universe america is increasingly amoral it's just my my morality is the only morals if it i feel good about it yeah, that's fine. That's, so Jesus came to save the barbarians. And then there were the Romans. The Romans understood morality. The Greeks understood morality. There were a lot of moral values in their culture. They just rejected them. They just walked away. That was my generation. We walked away from the things we knew to be true because we found them to be oppressive and restrictive. So we just rejected them. And then Paul says those people need a Savior. But Paul goes one step further and he says there are also moral people and those moral people can be bound up and enslaved just as much as the other two. There's only one category you want to be in, and that's what Paul would be called forgiven, redeemed people, people who walk in that relationship with Christ. And he goes on and he closes that by kind of giving us three different things that are happening in the game of life that he's experiencing, and yet his joy is sustained. Uh, in verse, the latter part of verse 8, he says, "...because of him I've suffered the loss of all things, and considered them filth, so that I might gain Christ." And to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal, my goal is to know Him. My goal is not to be better. My goal is not to be educated. My goal is not, He was that, but my goal is not to be better in my understanding of world philosophy or to get more likes on Facebook. My goal is simply to know Him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that somehow I will reach the resurrection from the dead. Now, what Paul essentially is saying is this, is the essence of who we are as believers is the joy that we have that is the overflow of a relationship in him. Now, I grew up, I grew up as I've already mentioned, in a joyless Christian home that later, even though they were to proclaim that they were Christians, they were what we would call cultural Christians. It was just what everybody was. The old statement in my home state is, there are more Baptists in this state than there are people. Think about it. Everybody was religious, but it didn't change their life. They just ascribed to that particular religion's set of philosophical principles. I didn't understand because the church that I went to, I never saw people express joy. I saw nothing in my estimation that was life transformative (coughs) where I think of the Old Testament passage in the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah came back from Babylon and he went back to his hometown and it was utterly destroyed, and he rode around in the early morning and he saw the destroyed walls of Jerusalem and he saw the remains of what used to be a great temple and a great city and it was gone. And his response was not depression, it was the joy of the Lord is my strength. Paul saw something that many people, the church in America, have not understood. Christianity is just not believing in God. It is having a relationship with the God who died for you. So Paul could go through all these things. He could go through suffering. He could go through joy and loss. Jesus is our joy and he's our presence in suffering. And he is the promise of our resurrection and our dying. We will not escape these things in our lives. Fifteen years ago, as a pastor, our lives have always been acquainted with suffering. We lived in a culture where people got cancer young and died. Our people were killed in genocidal wars. But for the most part, it didn't affect our family. And so I was a pastor ministering out of the circumstantial happiness of my life to those who were suffering. But then about 15 years ago, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Then we watched his life ebb away over the next eight years. My B-17 pilot hero laid in a bed, curled up as an emaciated 70-pound little man who didn't even know who his family was before he died. And then it was my mother-in-law who the same long, torturous, painful, gut-wrenching death with Alzheimer's becoming just a shell of the human being we known. then my father-in-law with Parkinson's disease. And finally this February, after eight years of being with us, this long suffering period of time to my mother finally passed away. For 42 years, in good times and in bad times, one of the things that has sustained me is the presence and the joy of my marriage to Heather Dillon. When we suffered, she was there. When I hurt, she was there. There's always the continuance of joy because of the primacy of relationship. But six years ago, she became ill. And there was a time where I thought I was going to lose her. And in those times when she was at her worst, my Savior reminded me, you cannot hold on to her, but you can't hold on to me. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I am the love of your life. So the apostle Paul would say, in whatever estate I might find myself, I experience not the transitory nature of circumstantial happiness that's here today and like a rope of sand. The more we seek it, the more we pursue it, the more it disappears from our lives. Don't waste your life pursuing that which can never satisfy you. It is not the law. It is not the license. It is not the rejection of the law. But it is the presence of an ever-living God that changes us, that makes this life worth living. I want to ask you two questions in closing this morning. As a Christian, are you like King David where he fell fell into sin and he said, I've lost the joy of my salvation. That is not, you want you to understand, that is not the normative estate that is not the normative state for a born again believer of Christ. It is through all of life to experience his presence in such a way that even in our suffering, even in our pain, even in our dying, we walk in joy. Are you walking in joy today? Do not allow the isms, the troubles, the weeds, the problems of life to rob you from that which God has given to you through the cross and the dying of His Son, Jesus. That is our inheritance, our right, is this relationship that we now have with God. So I don't know what to do. I don't know how to restore that. Come to Him. Cling to Him. Get to know Him. Read about him, pray to him, speak with him, talk with him, look to him, walk with him, experiencing him. Like the psalmist has said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not just quantum data. It is the reality of the presence of God living in us, the hope of glory. The second thing I want to say is, did you ever have his joy in the first place? My parents would have argued with you all day long that they were Christians. They had been baptized. They were members of a church. They did all the requirements of the law. And the one thing they didn't have was his joy. Thank God I saw in their later years God changed that. I saw the joy of the Lord come into my parents' life to some degree that they could know it at that point in their life. But you may be here this morning, and you may be one of those cultural Christians where you think, well, my grandmother was a Christian. I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. I go to church, I'm therefore a Christian. No, the definitive mark that distinguishes a Christian from all other humans on the planet Earth is that no matter where we find ourselves in life, God's presence and God's joy makes a difference in our heart. Where there is no song, He gives us a song. So I want to encourage you this morning as we take this time to close and to walk out of this place, do not leave here without answering those questions. Have I lost my joy? Is there something I need to do to begin to pursue and renew my love relationship with God that I once had? And on the other hand, you need to examine yourself. If that joy has never been manifested in your life, I want to tell you that is one of the chief marks of who we are as believers. When you come to Christ, the joy Of falling in love changes everything about who you are. Let's pray together. Father, God, keep us. Keep us from the dogs. God, keep me from the dogs of my heart. God, keep us from the dogs of religion. Deliver us, Father. That our lives might be a testimony of the presence of the living God who gives life where there's hopelessness, that gives joy in the midst of suffering, that brings fullness in a time of scarcity. God, help us not to settle for something less than what Jesus, the Messiah, died on the cross for. Lord, only you can change us. Preachers can't change us. Morals can't change us. The law can't change us. Philosophies can't change us. Pills can't change us. Only God, only you have the power to change us. Oh, God, how desperately we need you. Forgive us when we lose what you bought for us on Calvary. Lord, restore the song. Put joy in our hearts. Let every morning be a rejoicing that we are with you, that you are always present. You never forsake us. And one day you'll carry us home Father, when we fumble and we fail and we lose, let the joy of our, your presence be that which sustains us and guides us and watches over us in the night when sleep evades us, Father. Father, we bring our fears and our anxieties and we lay them at the feet of the joy of Jesus. God, protect this nation from joyless Christians. Protect this nation. Protect our children from darkness in homes that are filled with loveless religion. Oh God, save us and deliver us. We need you. You are a business. You are a God who always comes and does business with your children. You're always available. You're always working. Let us not walk from this place not having dealt with what your word says. We're going to close. We're going to sing during that time if you need to come and pray and encourage you to do it, but just you can do business with God right where you're at. Just think about what we've said. Just speak to him, talk to him, cry out to him. He's faithful to answer. And then we'll close after this time of singing together.